In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Dear faithful, this coming Tuesday, we will celebrate the feast of Saints Peter of excuse me, of the feast of Saints Peter. Let's try this again. We we'll celebrate the feast of Saint Peter's Chair at Rome. This important feast was instituted to commemorate the coming of the Prince of the Apostles from his first see at Antioch to the Rome, the capital of the empire and the center of the ancient world, there to set up his definitive see from which his successors would govern and guide the universal church. We have an indication of St. Peter already being at Rome in his first epistle, in which the final salutation reads, The church that is in Babylon, elected together with you, saluteth you, and so doth my son Mark. At this time, the Babylon of the Old Testament lay in ruins, and in the New Testament, Babylon refers either to Jerusalem or to Rome. And it cannot mean Jerusalem here. Uh, it refers, therefore, to the Caput Mundi, the head of the world, the ancient city of Rome. This feast of St. Peter's Chair at Rome begins the traditional Chair of Unity octave, which lasts until the Feast of the Conversion of St. Paul on January 25th. This octave was sanctioned by the Church in 1908 by Pope St. Pius X, and was spread to the whole Church by Pope Benedict XV a few years later. The man behind the establishment of this octave was one Lewis Thomas Watson, who became known as Father Paul of Graymoor. He was born in Maryland in January of 1863 to a poor Episcopalian minister and his wife. Just like his father, he was drawn to the traditional leaning practices of the conservative sector of the Episcopalian Church, which is the American branch of the Anglican Church. He followed in his father's footsteps and became an Episcopalian minister serving in New York. He began to publish articles and doctrinal points and found himself in line with the Catholic Church on many topics, such as the sacraments, the Holy Mass, and the marks of the Church. He then founded an order based on the Franciscans called the Society of Atonement, whose work was to unite all Christians into one body, as our Lord had intended when he founded his church. After many years and trials, Paul of Graymore entered the Catholic Church in 1909. It is very beautiful to note that he began the practice of praying the octave for church unity while still an Episcopalian, and that the prayer led to his and others' reception into the Catholic Church. His prayer was answered. That practice was then approved, this uh, unity of church unity octave was approved by the church and spread to the whole church by the Holy Fathers. Dear faithful, here we have true ecumenism in action. Father Paul of Graymore, whose cause for canonization is open, began as a true seeker of God and of the truth. He prayed with an open and honest prayer for true Christian unity, and he was brought to that into the bosom of the Church of Jesus Christ, one holy, catholic, and apostolic. This is what Pope Pius XI taught in his encyclical on ecumenism in 1929. The unity of Christians cannot be otherwise obtained than by securing the return of the separated to the one true Church of Christ from which they once unhappily withdrew. To the one true Church of Christ, we say, that stands before all and that by the will of its founder will remain forever the same as when he himself established it for the salvation of mankind. The Pope continues explaining why this unity is so important. Children did, alas, he says, abandon their father's house, but the house did not therefore fall into ruins, supported as it was by the unceasing help of God. Let them return, then, to the common father of all. He has forgotten the unjust wrongs inflicted upon the Holy See and will receive them most lovingly. If, as they often say, they desire to be united with us and with ours, 
why do they not hasten to return to the church, the mother and mistress of all the followers of Christ? Let them listen to Lactantius, a church father, crying, It is only the Catholic Church that retains the true worship. It is the fountain of truth. It is the household of the faith. It is the temple of God. If anyone does not enter it, or if anyone departs from it, he is a stranger to the hope of life and salvation. Let no one deceive himself by continuous wrangling. Life and salvation are in the balance, which, if not looked too carefully and diligently, will be lost and destroyed. It is a matter of salvation and perdition, heaven and hell, eternal joy and eternal damnation. We pray for the return of all those of our separated brethren, for outside the church there is no salvation. St. Augustine tells us, A man cannot have salvation except in the Catholic Church. Outside the Catholic Church he can have everything except salvation. He can have honor, he can have even some of the sacraments, he can sing Alleluia, he can answer Amen, he can possess the Gospel, he can preach the faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, but never except in the Catholic Church will he be able to find salvation. Dear faithful, this is a dogma of our faith. Extra ecclesiam nulla salus, outside the Church, there is no salvation. It has been defined and taught by the Church and constitutes one of the beautiful facets of the brilliant gem of her doctrine that she presents to the faithful. There is but one universal Church of the faithful, outside of which no one at all is saved, taught Pope Innocent III at the Fourth Lateran Council. It is important to understand and uphold this dogma, for the salvation of souls is at stake. Nothing is more important. If there is no salvation outside the Church, the flip side of that coin is a message of great hope and optimism. Inside the church is found salvation. Inside the church is found mercy. Inside the church is found everlasting life. This is why we must not be afraid to defend this dogma, to present it charitably yet firmly to those who do not yet have the joy of being members of Christ's mystical body. We leave the judgment of souls to our Lord, for he will come again to judge the living and the dead, but we should be willing and ready to share the good news of salvation with others. We must do so intelligently, kindly, and prudently. All that is not against the rules. But on the other hand, we should not be timid. We should do so, first of all, by our example, but also use words and defend the truth should the opportunity present itself. The truth is beautiful and powerful. Let us not restrict it by our cowardice. It is not our opinion. It is the holy truth of God. Lastly, dear faithful, in these difficult times for the church, let us remember that outside the church there is no salvation for us as well. Let us not consider for a moment abandoning our mother, assailed though she is on every side and even from the interior. Even should the apostles and Peter himself betray and deny the church, we will not abandon her. They, are separated, they would separate themselves from our Lord and from his church, but we will remain humble and faithful. Our response should be that of St. Peter, when our Lord asked his apostles after the exposition of the Eucharist if they would follow his other disciples and leave him as well. Lord, said the Prince of the Apostles, to whom should we go? You have the words of everlasting life. Yes, let us remain here, here in the bosom of Holy Mother the Church, outside of which there is no salvation, but inside of which we hope with unshakable confidence to obtain salvation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.